Hey there, you're listening to Ghost Notes, the podcast where we look at music from the inside and out. My name is Noah, but you probably know me better as Polyphonic. And I'm Corey, and I make 12-tone. And today we're going to talk about artistic intent and to what extent it matters. And I think where I'd like to start this, if this works for you, is sort of distinguishing between what I think of as like the two main kinds of conversations around artistic intent, right? Yes. There's, for me, I think the, the main distinction I'd make is between discussions of explicit artistic intent, which is where like we have a record, like the, the artist has said, this is what I meant. This is what the song is about. This is why I played this note in this particular way. And those discussions tend to revolve around like, what do we do when that disagrees with your interpretation? Is that yeah. a privileged idea of what the song is or what the piece of music is? And the other main distinction, the other main category, I mean, is assumed or presumed artistic intent, where we don't have a statement. We don't have this explicit, like, this is what I meant. And we're sort of trying to guess from context clues and from what we know about the artist and from our own assumptions about how art works. And in those sorts of discussions, the big focus tends to be on, like, to what extent should our analysis be about uncovering that artistic intent and trying to figure out what they meant as opposed to other goals? I think that makes sense to me. If if I think of anything else, I'll bring it up. But yeah, that's that's definitely, those are definitely two kind of related but distinct yeah. frameworks to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. Probably the explicit artistic intent discussion is going to inform the presumed artistic intent discussion. So it makes sense for me, I think, to start there, if that's cool with you. Yeah, that's great with me. Yeah, but I guess I probably, like, do you have any thoughts you'd like to start off with on that one? Yeah, I think it's a complicated thing because I think if you don't want the artistic intent to matter, I don't think it needs to matter. Like to most explicitly say that if someone says, I mean, to use an example from outside of music that's often cited in this is Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451 is a book that it's a dystopian future where people burn books, et cetera, et cetera. Generally, it's understood. And when we in like the literary community and stuff talk about it, treat it as a metaphor for censorship. Ray Bradbury has always insisted it's a metaphor for TV and how mass media is killing books. You know, like like Bradbury has explicitly said that. And at the end of the day, I don't actually think it matters that much if you decide to do the censorship reading and it's in there what Ray Bradbury says or not. Now, you can take the Bradbury interpretation as a framework for a reading and to to do this in music, I mean, that's a lot of what I do on my channel, right? A lot of what I do on my channel is I take these quotes from these artists saying, you know, this is what was on my mind when I was writing this song And then I use that to inform my reading. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think that if you're doing a reading that contradicts that, I don't think there's, I don't think you're you're fundamentally wrong. And like, there's definitely been things. Yeah. To use your work as an example of this, because I think you recently did a very good example of this and a very interesting one that I'd like to dissect a little bit is your red right hand video. Yes. Because that one was sort of walking that line really carefully where there is like some statements, some clear statements about what Nick Cave was doing, but what he was doing was sort of not an explicitly definable thing in that way, if that makes sense. Yeah. Was sort of the message I got where it's just like, I am trying to do something, like here are the the explicit influences that I was thinking about, but also I understand and recognize intentionally that it is much more open than that. And I think Nick Cave is a great artist for that because in in general, Nick Cave, Bob Dylan, a lot of these artists are really great because I I think a lot of them understand that so much of the fun of this stuff is figuring it out yourself. And so they don't really like laying out clear explanations, you know, both Cave and Dylan. And there's other artists like this, too. Like a lot of them kind of will mention things offhanded and then you can kind of run with that and use that to inform your own reading where like in the Nick Cave video, I'm not saying like Nick Cave says this song is about, you know, organized religion or whatever, but I'm saying that Nick Cave's quotes and history, Nick Cave does say that this, he took this line from paradise lost and that it's about divine vengeance. And from there, we can kind of extrapolate that information across the song. 
yeah, and we can make assumptions. And it sort of, again, blurs that line that I was drawing where there are there is explicit source material that forces you to make assumptions. I do think on the question of explicit artistic intent, there are times where it is really important to understand meaning at a level deeper than the surface interpretation, right? Like the, the obvious example that comes to mind is let's stay together. Yeah. Right? Like that is structured like a love song very clearly. And if you listen to it and you don't understand any of the cultural context, it just sounds like a love song. But Al Green has explicitly stated that it was inspired by and about the civil rights movement and the country staying together and not being torn apart. And so there is this level to which the meaning of the song, that structure as a love song that can be read as just a love song on the surface is an intentional almost misdirect to what the song is really trying to say. And I think being aware of that sort of thing can be really important. I think an important aspect of that too is that this is something that people always seem to kind of like forget in these discussions is that art can have multiple meanings. Like yeah. like a- another example- Is it a duck? Is it a rabbit? You know? A- another example, not quite as profound as the Let's Stay Together, but Closing Time. You know, yeah. closing time, everyone had known that forever. It's it's the song you play when you're closing a bar and stuff like that. And then a few years ago, this clip comes out where the guy who wrote it said, well, actually, you know, like I was writing this about my newborn baby that was about to be born. And the thing is, that doesn't mean it's not about a bar yeah. closing. That means that it's both about a bar closing. Yeah. And he's using that as an extended metaphor for the deeper meaning. I've had similar things where in my analysis of Trench by 21 Pilots, there's a song, yeah. My Blood, where I talked about how that fit into the broader story. And someone, I, I got commenters saying, well, in interviews, he said it's about his brother. And yeah. as somebody who, not just in like polyphonic and stuff, but I also like write and I create stuff and things like that. And you put a lot of intentional meaning in, you know, you write characters, you write people that you know into stuff as different characters and you create these yeah. analogs to your life because yeah, of course that song's, I'm sure that song is about his brother, but that song also fits as being this emotional state that the character is in, in this kind of concept album. Yeah. And I think that's an important point when we're talking about explicit artistic intent is that just because we have a statement that says this is what this is about, it's not even necessarily that they didn't mean it as something else. Yeah. It, we can, again, get into like whether you can read something else into it, but the fact that they are like, this is what I meant by this, doesn't mean they didn't think about anything else either. There are good writers and good artists will often be very good at, again, layers, adding different ideas and things that can work for different people in different ways or different contexts in different ways controlling that flow of narrative. Yeah, no, I think I think that makes a lot of sense. Like there's this interesting thing where a lot of the time artists will say like like you'll note that if if you read a lot of these interviews and stuff like this, a lot of the time these artists don't say this is what this song is about. They say, yeah. this is what I was trying to say with this song. Yeah. You know? And or this is what I was what I was experiencing when I wrote yeah, this song. Yeah. And 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 I think that, that that's it's a subtle difference, but it's a really it's yeah. a really important difference. You know, like the reality is I think most artists know that part of making art is trying to say something and throwing it out to the world and having them read something into it that wasn't there at all. And, you know, like you can inform that, but a lot of the time that just happens. Yeah. I mean, art is fundamentally a conversation, right? Like you can't just, you can't just make a declaration with your music and be like, this is the only thing this music is. This is what I was saying. People still have to hear that and have to interpret that through their own lens, their own experience. And, you know, potentially any mishearings too. They may just like misunderstand what you're saying. But if you want to communicate a point really clearly, it sort of has to be really explicit within the work because otherwise people will miss it. And even if, again, if you do put it pretty clearly in the work, people can, I don't know about miss it, but can interpret it differently. Like this is an example I've used multiple times on this podcast already, but I will use it again because I like repeating myself. Jackson Brown. Uh, But song for Adam, (laughs) yes. (laughs) But yeah, it's like the, 
song, as I've mentioned, is, is very clearly about an old friend of roughly the same age suddenly passing away, presumably implied by suicide. And that song makes me think of my grandfather who passed away at a very old age of Alzheimer's. There's no clear connection in anything in the lyrics that makes that, well, some parts of the lyrics, but there's really explicitly a specific story in that song, and it does not have anything to do with the story that that song conjures in my mind because of those personal experiences. And like, I, I wouldn't say that like, it's reasonable for me to be like, oh, well, Jackson Brown also was thinking of this when he was writing this song and he just, he just didn't make it as clear. That, that seems obviously wrong to me. It also doesn't matter to me as much that that's not yeah. what he meant because it's a meaningful and important interpretation to me personally. I, I think that's one of the big points is, does it matter if that's not what the artist meant? And I say not at all, like not even, no. not even remotely. Not unless that's what you're talking about. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a, which, which seems like a very kind of like arbitrary, you know, it only yeah. matters if you make it matter, but that's, it truly yeah. is that. But it's yeah. art, you know, it's all arbitrary. Yeah, well, and, and I think one of the big things about music specifically is that so much of lyricism is kind of lives in the realm of metaphor and archetype yeah. and these broad things like like that's that's why it works that's why it connects to us because yeah. like like music i think probably more at least to me more than any other art form operates in this space of clearer like emotion you know and there are there are yeah. narrative things in music and there's great songs that are narratives and stuff like that but so much of music operates in this ethereal kind of like collective unconscious space you know where it is yeah. just people throwing out these images and this again i talked about a lot in that nick cave video is the idea of there are just these images that exist in the zeitgeist that we understand and and yeah. similarly within a cultural framework there's also on the musical side there's also just you know chord framings and voicings yeah. and instrumental timbres and stuff like that that we just have a contextual understanding like the the DSA ray is a great example of that yeah. right where yeah. uh, the the DSA ray is four notes hey. that <laughs> that one yeah yeah yeah. Technically eight notes, but we often only play the first four. Yeah. Well, I mean, technically it's a whole hymn, but like you something anyway. But but that's something <laughs> that we culturally associate with death. Yeah. And whether somebody explicitly says, if an artist says, oh no, I was just, you know, I wasn't meaning to do the DSE Ray there. I just wrote those notes and they sounded good. Well, that artist is operating in a framework yeah. where what they're probably trying to convey is this sense of, you know, dread or morbidity or whatever that culturally and it's yeah. The DSE Ray has come to kind of represent for a lot of us. Yeah, and it's a really effective tool even if you don't know it. And this is sort of getting over into the presumed artistic intent side of the discussion, which is totally fine. One of my thoughts that I find most boring in the entire world as a music theorist is they just played what sounded good. Yeah, right? yeah. Like, I'm sure you get this. I'm sure anyone who talks about music anywhere online, in public, or even in public offline, gets this, where it's just yeah. like, you're thinking way too hard about it. They weren't thinking this hard about it. And sometimes that's true, sometimes it's not. I think often we're giving artists a lot less credit than they deserve. But I think we're also over-ascribing value to explicit intentionality, to thinking about like, okay, well, this chord does this or this chord does this. Like Almost always when we look at artists, they're almost never playing what sounded good, right? That is never, for good artists, that is almost never the motivation. Instead, what they're playing is something that sounds good in a specific context, something that sounds good for a mood they're trying to create. And they may not know why, although again, often I think we undercredit them. I think a lot of artists do know why to at least some level. Obviously, there's infinite complexity if we dig deep enough. Even if they don't have any explanation for why this chord works, that doesn't mean that there wasn't a conscious decision to play that chord there. And that doesn't mean that there wasn't a good reason for that, that they could have explained on, on the level of like vibes or on the level of atmosphere. I think the most like basic example of this is 
chances are if you take somebody who has absolutely no musical training and is completely self-taught in an instrument and ask them to write a sad song, they will probably yeah. write it in a minor key, you yeah. know, accidentally. Yeah. Because those vibes just sound sad to them. Yeah, and my, my favorite example is like, if you look at punk music, we talk a lot about like, you know, Four Chords and The Truth, which was originally country, but has been applied to punk a lot too. And that's, you know, the one, four, five, mm -hmm. which I, I believe is what it was mostly in country as well. But like, there's these very clear, strong, solid foundational chords in tonal contexts. And it's true that like, the way guitars are structured, these are not hard chords to play, but there are more than three chords that are easy to play on a guitar. Yeah. And it's not a coincidence that it keeps being sets of three chords that fit into that framework, right? Like they could just as easily be playing like C, A, and G, I guess. Yeah, C major, A major, G major. They could just as easily be playing that, but they're not because that doesn't fit with those specific sounds that would sound really weird. And as I say this, I'm sure someone is going to send me a tweet telling me about a punk song that uses those three chords. Please yeah. do. Yeah. If you know of a punk song that uses C major, G major, and A major exclusively, I want to listen to that. That sounds really cool. But you're much more likely to see like CFG because that fits a specific tonal framework that they're familiar with, even if they wouldn't necessarily be able to explain the full context of that. Literally no one can explain the full context of that or basically anything in music. Again, infinite complexity if you zoom in close enough. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> I think that like you're really kind of like doing the entire, you know, practice of musical analysis a disservice if you're oversimplifying to like, you know, the oh, you're overthinking it and stuff like that. Like they yeah. were just playing like like, yeah, the entire fun the entire fun of music is a lot of these people are just going up and playing and we're kind of working at reverse engineering. Why does that hit me so hard? Whether it's lyrically, yeah. musically, in arrangement, any of these things, it's like what we're doing is what's really fun is, yeah, they're just going up and making us feel things. And then we're kind of saying, so why do we feel that? You know, like, like that's, that's what's interesting to me, and that's what's way more interesting than, you know, what was the artist thinking when they were playing that? And there's lots of cool stories about what the artist was thinking. Yeah. But fundamentally, I think most people come at music analysis not from a point of, you know, was the artist trying to do this? And from a point of how did the artist make this happen? I think that's part of the disconnect in these sorts of discussions where I think for us, that is very much how we think about this. Yeah. If you're not really used to formal artistic analysis in that sort of way, it can be very natural to assume, again, getting back to presumed artistic intent, presuming our art intent, it's, it's very natural to assume that the goal is to uncover the artist, what the artist was trying to do. And that that is sort of when I say this chord does this and they they had this chord had like for this reason or this melodic gesture had this effect. It's very reasonable to hear that as me saying this is why yeah. David Bowie did it this way or Nick Cave or whoever. And that's not necessarily what I'm saying, but it is, I think, often the issue is that people will come in and assume that I'm saying the artist did it for this reason and either they have information to the contrary or it just clashes with their assumption of the artist's intent and their interpretation and it sounds like I'm saying they're wrong. And I think that I am, like I said, I'm sympathetic to that viewpoint where if you're not as used to the way that like formal music analysis is generally talked about in the sorts of circles for people who make and listen to podcasts like Ghost Notes, it makes sense to me that you might feel not not quite under attack, but so if you, you might feel like you're being challenged. Well, and I was going to say, and I think coming to that mentality makes sense because there definitely are things where you can kind of look and see, like I think that, I think a lot of the time when people look at kind of like, you know, how a guitarist gets their tone or something like yeah. that, you know? That's something where people are looking and they're kind of saying, like, it, they are looking from this kind of, like, 
artist intentionality point, you know, where it's like, like, what did the artist do to create that tone? Because something like guitar tone, I mean, though, again, with the intentionality in my echoes video, I literally have a quote from David Gilmore where he says, I just fiddled around on the buttons until it sounded good. But then so much of that video is me saying, you know, this guitar tone sounds good because it sounds like you're kind of underwater in these sweeping soundscapes, even though the song was originally written about space. This is going back to the kind of like explicit intentionality where like David Gilmore's just saying, you know, I was just fiddling around with guitar tones and the song was originally a jam like based on something written about space. But then within this context those tones yeah. make you feel like you're underwater because of the lyrical framework. And, and that's great and it's cool and it makes it amazing. Yeah. And that, I mean, comes back slightly off topic, but comes to the, the strength of context, right? Where yeah, again, once you've established this context, it's very easy to interpret everything else through whatever lens. And so and this is a thing to sort of go, Wildly off topic for a second, but I promise this example will come back to being relevant, hopefully. Recently, I've been playing around with setting Sudoku. Like, mostly variant Sudoku. But anyway, the point is that, like, the way I've been approaching that is to sort of pick out, like, an opening move that I want you to get and put whatever information I can to force that. And then from there, I'll just check what that forces and then make my next decision. And I wind up with all of these steps that I never really planned to put in there, yeah. but work really well because of these other things and they get me from the thing I wanted to do to the next thing I wanted to do. And that you get this flow through the puzzle. And when you solve a Sudoku, like a handcrafted one, you often get this sense that you're being led on a journey from point to point and everything feels really intentional and explicit. And it just... Like, I, actually, one of the ones that I said, I sent into a channel called Cracking the Cryptic. Highly recommend if anyone likes Sudokus. Anyway, they do live solves. This is now a Sudoku podcast. This is now a plug for a channel that's not even on this podcast or Nebula. Anyway, they, as he was solving, like, he kept finding these things. I was just like, wow, how did you how did you come up with this? How did you incorporate that? This is such a cool little flourish. And the answer, like, some of the time was, oh, this was an idea I had. But other times it was just like, oh, this just happened because of these other ideas I had. I got this cool thing for free. And I think that that, when we're talking about artistic intent to circle back to music, like that happens a lot where you have these things that aren't even necessarily intended to have this meaning, aren't at any conscious level designed to have this meaning, aren't picked because they even create whatever atmosphere, but because of the surrounding context, because you made other decisions, they do. They have this effect. They like become this thing that they otherwise wouldn't be. I think the simplest, the simplest example of that is just kind of like a chord that resolves a phrase, you know? Like you write yeah. a, a lot of the time, I know in like in like songwriting, I don't songwrite a ton, but I used to write more. Yeah. And you know, I would write a couple chords that sounded interesting together. And then I would be like, okay, you know, I've got three chords here. How do I finish this phrase and play around? And there would be one that would resolve it nicely. That was, I was not deciding, oh, you know, I'm going to play this to resolve it because I like, I'm not great at music theory. I was like, (laughs) oh, this sounds nice. But that the reason it sounds nice is because of the theory, you know? Yeah, because um, because of the the work that you did to set yes, it up. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's it's dominoes sometimes. And I mean, like Yeah, I'm, oh, it's, it's all dominoes. There's everything that's that's one of the things that makes music analysis so hard. And this is the thing I got into in my recent video about vocal analysis is that it's all multidimensional and nonlinear, which is real fancy smart person words, but basically what I mean is that there's you know, there's a lot of different factors that you have to consider and that all intersect and that we sort of interpret not as individual factors, but as a Voltron of music, basically. We sort of take all of these things and we put them together and we experience them as one thing. And so the impact of any given change or the impact of any given decision, rather, will be influenced by every other decision you've made. And I think another aspect of that is that it's also influenced by a bunch of decisions or not even decisions, but like yeah. 
a bunch of things around you that influence those decisions. So one of my favorite things, and you were talking about context, like if you watch most of my videos, they begin with setting the like scene historically as to where this fits in because yeah. one way or another, the weight of history is always on art, you know, like one way or another. I've been absolutely stealing that approach <laughs> recently, by the way. But It's a great approach because yeah. like the reality is that like even we're creating right now with our videos and yeah. our podcasts and stuff that is in conversation with what is going on in the time period, whether we yeah. mean to or not. And even things that are kind of, there's even things that are, in conversation with the time period by deliberately trying to not be in conversation with the time period, you know, by, yeah. by deliberately looking at a past or deliberately ignoring what's going on around you. If you are deliberately trying to do something different than what is going on around you, you are fundamentally probably more so than anyone else influenced by what is going on around you. Yeah. Yeah. This is a, a thing that I've actually been thinking about a lot recently since you mentioned sort of the work that you and I do, because I I don't actually remember if I mentioned this on the podcast when we did the Music Experts episode, but I am co-authoring a chapter for the Oxford Handbook on Public Music Theory about YouTube. And we just this week, as we record, this week submitted our, like, I believe, final, final draft. I think we're done. There That's may be exciting. like one last pass for edits, but it's basically complete. And a lot of that was like figuring out what, music theory YouTube is, was going back and looking at how it happened and looking at like Leiper back in like 2006, who was making these piano tutorials where he incorporated the circle of fifths and stuff like that. And then leading that into Michael New around 2010. And then around 2016, there was this weird explosion where suddenly like me, Adam Neely, 8-Bit, Rick, Amy, I think Sideways as well, like a half dozen or so of us all basically simultaneously decided that we were going to start making curiosity content about music that really didn't exist prior to that. And like, we can look at that as being like, oh, I have this new idea. I'm this like visionary genius, but really clearly since, and I mean, I am a visionary genius, let's not underplay that. <laughs> but like clearly because all of these other people had this exact same thought at this exact same time, Clearly, there was something in the air around like 2016, something that, you know, may have been influenced by, you know, the rising influence of educational YouTube as a thing. It may have been in part based on changes in the algorithm that promoted more music content. That gets discussed a lot. I don't, that's really hard to pin down exactly what that means. But there's all these like factors that clearly led to 2016-ish being the time for this to happen. And the fact that it happened to be us is... You know, it's it's nice for me. It means I get to be 12-tone. But if it wasn't me, it would have been someone else. I think that's one of my, like, why one of my favorite kind of, like, things to explore in music is, like, the birth of genres. I've done a number of videos on this. I've done one on metal. I've done one on jazz. My sister Rosetta Tharp one is kind of one on yeah. rock and roll. Because, like, the reality yeah. is... Sister Rosetta Tharp, or, or for that matter, even like Chuck Berry, didn't sit down and intentionally say, I'm going to invent rock and roll. And it's so hard to kind of like look at, oh, I, I, again, this is part of the issue with the way we talk about music as kind of this individualistic thing is no one was like, oh, I'm going to invent rock and roll. It's like Ike Turner and Chuck Berry and all of these people were in this zeitgeist making this music and there was no such thing as rock and roll. And then suddenly there was rock and roll. And yeah, that's a thing where um, you can say, or even something like it's actually, you can see it. It's really clear with metal in the kind of like intentionality thing, because it's like nobody set out to invent metal, but there was a lot of clear intentionality of people trying to push music heavier, you know? And yeah. as people were trying to push music heavier- Trying to do heavier and heavier rock. And then. there was also this kind of like response to, you know, like the like satanic panics around rock and roll and all of these people being like, oh, you want satanic? We can show you <laughs> satanic, you know? And all of these kind of culminate. And again, we're off the authorial intent a little bit here, but I still think it's relevant here. Yeah, where you don't say, when Black Sabbath released Black Sabbath, which I pinpoint as like the album where you can find yeah. earlier things 
there is nothing that like that is the the most definitive place where metal is born. Yeah. There's no decision by Ozzy Osbourne who's like, I'm going to invent metal. But there's a lot of decisions by Ozzy Osbourne of like, and by Tony Iommi. Bill Ward, Geezer Butler, let's not write them out either. But Yeah, yeah. And and also, I mean, with Iommi talking about, you know, outside, yeah. like outside conditions affecting the intentionality. Famously, Iommi's like, you know, because of his fingers, he yeah. played a lot of tritones and stuff like that, right? Like, like all yeah. of this stuff affects, and that doesn't discount the fact that these were like, really brilliant, innovative people, yeah. but they weren't meaning to do this. They weren't meaning to invent metal. Yeah, I mean, this is a thing I talked about in a video a long time ago now about the naming of metal. And if you go back, that wasn't even the term that Black Sabbath used to describe themselves. That The term that like Bill Ward at least liked was downer rock. <laughs> it was, he was still thinking of what he was doing as a kind of rock. It was sort of, you know, a new kind of rock. Influenced by other sorts of rock, but it wasn't this whole new genre that metal eventually became. And that, I think, reminds me of a thing that I was discussed a bit in a video I did about the blues scale, like, years ago now. But, like, one of the interesting things about sort of looking at the history of the blues is that so much of that was an oral tradition. And so much of that oral tradition got lost as the yeah. like, incredibly oppressed communities that it operated in got lost. And so we really have no concept of who the original blues artists were. That stuff is much more in the realm of folklore and myth than, you know, we talk about rock and we can look at people like Chuck Berry and yeah. Elvis Presley, or we can go back further and look at people like Sister Rosetta Tharp. But like, we can talk about who these candidates are and in the blues we can't, but really in every genre, it is sort of an arbitrary defining line at some point. We're saying like, this is where these people were influenced enough by this movement to then become this new thing that wasn't already there, already was. I think the the blues actually gave me another really interesting kind of thought on this topic where when you're talking about the way that intentionality doesn't matter, Robert yeah. Johnson and the myth of Robert Johnson is an incredible example of that because Robert Johnson... When he was singing Crossroad Blues, he was not like by every account. And I've did I did a well, I've done several yep. videos on this and a lot of research. <laughs> he was not thinking of that in any way as him selling his soul to the devil. A lot of that is probably actually Tommy Johnson who yeah. had this myth, and then people were digging up these records and got this all jumbled. But Robert Johnson's Crossroads. When you read that as, you know, the pain of this man selling his soul to the devil, it breathes this new life into this and it yeah. becomes one of the foundational works for rock and roll. And again, I mean, especially the devil myth stuff like metal, right? Like that's something where Robert Johnson's intentionality with Crossroad Blues, I have never met Robert Johnson personally, so I can't speak to this. And there's not Shocking. really any interviews with him or anything, but all of the evidence seems to suggest that this is a song about traveling as a black man in the South yeah. and the fear that that brings. But because of the way, you know, we've read into it with myth, it flourishes into this new and and it's it's a better story. You know, it's, it's not more accurate for Robert Johnson, the man, no. but for Robert Johnson, the mythical figure, like you were mentioning, kind of like, represents this archetype of the godfather of rock and roll and stuff like that. For Robert Johnson, the yeah. myth, it's way it's way more powerful to read Crossroads as him talking about a Faustian bargain. Yeah, and that, there is one sort of, this is only tangentially related, but I'm going to transition to it because I don't have any direct thoughts on that. <laughs> but um, I do agree. But one example that I wanted to bring up is in terms of understanding artistic intent is like, imagine for a second that you are a space alien who has never heard earth music. Like, let's say you're familiar with earth instruments just for ease of analogy, but you've never, you know nothing about earth, you know nothing about the music, you know nothing about its history or its culture or anything. And I play you Jimi Hendrix's Star Spangled Banner. Mm -hmm. Like, your reaction to that is maybe like, oh, he's doing some cool sounds with his guitar. Yeah. But that, that's basically all you get from that. But then as you, you know, get closer, you learn about Jimi Hendrix as a person, you learn about the Star Spangled Banner, you learn about 
America, you learn about the Vietnam War, you learn about Woodstock, you learn about all this cultural context, it starts to be much clearer what that piece was about and what that piece was saying. And at no point in there have I introduced any statements from Jimi Hendrix about what that piece was about. In fact, if you go back and look at like interviews at the time, he denied that that was a particularly controversial statement. He, yep. like there was a clip on the Dick Cavett show where Dick Cavett was like, before anyone sends their angry letters, he's like, why would people send angry letters? I just, I like the song. I'm American, so I played the song. Yeah. It's our national anthem. And it's just like very clearly like, I just played the national anthem. I didn't do anything weird with it. I just had some fun. But I think it's pretty, like pretty commonly assumed that that is not really what was going on there, right? Yeah. Like I think that when you play the melody to the line and the rocket's red glare, and then do this long slide down from a high note into this big distorted explosion of noise. It's not subtle. It's just not subtle. And so, but I think to an extent, like maybe he genuinely didn't mean any of that. Maybe he was genuinely just having fun. But the song has this cultural interpretation and that had this cultural impact and the performance had anyway. It had this impact because of all of those associations, because this was Woodstock during the Vietnam War in with the national anthem, and it was Jimi Hendrix, and all of this comes together to make a very clear message that, you know, may or may not have been there. I'm going to lean towards was intentionally there. Whether Jimi Hendrix meant it to be that or not, everyone there took it as that, and historically, yeah. we have pointed to it meaning that. So that's what it means basically yeah. like whether Hendrix wanted it to or not which I agree with you I think another thing that's important to bring up here with the kind of explicit artistic content thing is people lie artists yeah. lie all the yeah. time Dylan is probably the <laughs> yeah yeah I love Dil the way Dylan talks about the intention of his works he's just like refuses to tell you anything well, yeah anyway go on yeah, well no I was I was gonna bring up Dylan on this because yeah Dylan will write like you know, a defining civil rights anthem and be like, ah, oh, yeah. you know, I was just writing what was going around at the time. There's, it was just an old folk song and I just wrote some words down and I didn't know it meant yeah. anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just read whatever you want into it. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. And I think partly like people lie for fun like Dylan, but also like if you look at, you know, Hendrix as like a black man in 1960s America yeah. making this really bold anti-government political statement, there are like, safety concerns towards him downplaying yeah. what he was trying to say to a public, largely white audience. And so there's all sorts of reasons that like, if you have a statement from the artist saying I did this, which this isn't always true, right? Like yeah. there are plenty of reasons that an artist might tell the truth about what they were doing too. But also if you look at statements from a long time after the music is released, I will often give those a lot less credit. Blackbird, for instance, yeah. Over the years, Paul McCartney has given like three or four different interpretations of what Blackbird was supposed to be about. Also, know who famously lied? The Beatles, all of the yeah, time. Yeah, that too. They, they all just the time. messed around with the press constantly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, another great example of this, and this is like not adding anything to your Star Spangled Banner point, but it's just a cool story that I like to tell. Like a Rolling Stone is this Dylan song that like, fundamentally is one of the greatest songs ever written. And people always talk about it as kind of like yeah. representing, it's the statement representing this entire generation. Chances are it's kind of actually probably just Dylan slinging mud at Edie Sedgwick, you know, like <laughs> a, a lot of Dylan's songs are kind of just like Dylan, you know, writing songs about someone that he's bitter towards. But in writing that Dylan was someone that could so perfectly capture a zeitgeist that he yeah. ended up making these giant statements about kind of entire generations when like there's there's a lot of evidence yeah. that suggests like a Rolling Stone, like the intentionality of that. Part of that is just Dylan kind of being like, calm down, Edie Sedgwick. <laughs> yeah, although, you know, much more about Bob Dylan than I do. I might push back on the idea that like. That was all he was doing? Oh, I no, I, I agree. I don't think that's all he was doing. Right? Like, I, yeah. I think that uh, one of the things about Dylan and one of the things about, like, those sorts of, like, poet laureate lyricists like Dylan, like Jackson Brown, is that they will do things very intentionally, like we talked about, on multiple levels. Yeah. Like, he will, like, 
this may have inspired him, but he will then abstract it enough that it can also mean these other things. A hundred percent. And that some of those other things may be intentionally there. Some of those other things may be sort of just him being vague to leave space for those interpretations. But again, this comes back to a point I think you were making at the beginning, which is that like artists often don't have just one intent. Yeah. And so the appeal to artistic intent often fails on that criteria alone, where you're just saying, like, this is what the artist meant, and it's like, the artist meant two things. I think something that I want to bring up here and talk about, though, that's interesting is cases where the artist meant something so kind of, like, clearly that it's hard to interpret it in other ways. Yeah, Prison Song is the example that comes to mind. I I was going to say Nina Simone's Mississippi Goddamn. You know, like, System of a Down have a lot of these things. Or, I mean, it's tough. A tough example when it comes to this stuff is Rage Against the Machine, right? Where you can take the authorial intent thing to say, well, does it really matter if Rage Against the Machine you know, meant to write radical leftist stuff. Does it really matter if Paul Ryan interprets it differently and likes yeah. it? And and that's something where, you know, it challenges me. I struggle with that. And I think, yeah, Rage is sort of, comparing Rage to System of a Down is, I think, a really interesting and useful example here because Rage relies a lot on that sort of abstract imagery. Yeah. Like, you know, you look at some of those that work forces are the same that burn crosses. And like, if you know what they're trying to say there, it's pretty clear that's about the police. But there are other interpretations of workforces, and you don't necessarily, like, you, you probably, if you have any familiarity with American history, know what burn crosses means. Yeah. But like, what does it mean to work a force? Is that talking about white collar workers? Is that talking, and I, I, I'm pretty confident it's talking about the police force, but that's not necessarily in the song specifically. Whereas again, to go back to prison song, the bridge to prison song is Serge Tankian yelling, all research and successful drug policies show that treatment should be increased and law enforcement decreased while abolishing mandatory minimum sentences and then just screaming. Yeah. Over and over. That is the bridge to that song. And it makes it very hard to listen to that and come away with any interpretation other than what Serge Tankian wants you to think. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, though, like, there are Rage Against the Machine things. Like, in Take the Power Back, Zach De La Rocha says, True. the present curriculum, I put my fist in him, Eurocentric, every last one of them, see right through the red, white, and blue disguise, with lecture, I puncture the structure of lies. And it's like, you're you're talking about, like, yeah. it's interesting, because, like, I like, you know, laughing at when right-wing people get into Rage Against the Machine and did a whole video about this thing. Take the Power Back, which is one of their biggest songs, is a song about Eurocentrism in the American school system contributing to the marginalization of people of color and especially black Americans. Like it's it very much is that. But it, it pushes up against what I say earlier when I'm like when I say it doesn't really matter if Ray Bradbury says that, you know, Fahrenheit 451 is about TV, like by the same measure, I kind of think it does matter if Rage Against the Machine, like, in their lyrics, clearly are talking about this stuff, but maybe it doesn't, and that's just my bias. It's a place where I struggle. I think it's definitely an open question, right? I don't think that there's a correct answer. Yeah. I think that, again, it depends what you're trying to do with your analysis. I do think that there is an extent to which, but, but, I mean, even, again, comparing that Rage Against the Machine quote to the System of a Down quote, it's still a lot more... Yeah. Vague. It's still a lot more ambiguous. It's dressed up in more imagery. And so, you know, you can pretty clearly work out quite a bit of what's being said there, especially with the the toss to Eurocentrism. That's a pretty explicit word in terms of what the overall message is. But basically, again, like I said, it's an open question. It's about whether or not you want to read that into it. But I do think the closest that I would come to taking a stance on this is that it matters to understand what the artist is trying to say. It doesn't matter to agree with them. So I think when we talk about the Ray Bradbury example, it's worth knowing that he considers it to be about television and to be about new media and that that is is an important part of coming to your final understanding of what the piece means. But... 
that doesn't mean you can't interpret it as being about censorship instead. Yeah. And so in the same way, I think that a lot of why, you know, people like Paul Ryan, like Rage Against the Machine, isn't because they have fully considered the implications of what Rage Against the Machine is trying to say and decided to interpret it differently, but rather they have jumped to a conclusion that allows it to conform to their intended meaning. Like, again, to come back to the Song for Adam example, I know what Jackson Brown roughly was trying to say with that song. I just choose to interpret it differently. And I think that that is valid, but I think that there is still... I guess it's a, it's a difference between not knowing versus not caring yeah. about what the artist was trying to say. Like, I, you cannot care. That's fine. But I think that it is important to know at at least some level. I also think it's different depending on the song because, like, something like yeah. System of a Down or Rage Against the Machine or a lot of these things, I think— a lot of political music and explicitly yeah. political art, because there's also lots of implicitly political art. Like a Rolling yeah. Stone is an implicitly political song. Take the Power Back or Prison Song are explicitly political songs. Pretty explicit, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I think that there's, or even something like like Born in the USA or Fortunate Son, you know? If you're just going to go on and listen to the song and enjoy it on whatever front, I guess that's not, like, that's not a big problem. But if you're going to try to use a song as part of your kind of like political message or brand and that song is undercutting that you know like like yeah born in the usa is probably the ultimate of example yeah, the, the of classic this. example yeah. yeah yeah or rocking in the yeah. free world i i think there's something there's something different about this but again it's something where like yeah, i think so if i if i can sort of yeah yeah jump in yeah if i can butt in for a second I think because I finally put this together while you were talking, I think the distinction that we're trying to make here and that we're dancing around is the difference between telling a story and making a statement. Mm. So Mm -hmm. you have music that is, you know, is trying to create a feeling, is trying to be like, you know, and may communicate a specific story, may communicate an atmosphere, may communicate whatever. Those are really much more personal and open to interpretation and like everything's open to interpretation. But yeah. When you get to songs that are trying to make a statement, especially when you're trying to use them to make a statement, like again, like we talked about in our Music List episode, when someone tells you their favorite band, they are partly making a statement about who they are. And so when Paul Ryan says his favorite band is Rage Against the Machine, which, God, that's like a decade-old example at this point, but whatever, he is trying to identify with sort of the rebellious spirit of Rage Against the Machine. He is trying to communicate that he's this maverick, and therefore it's relevant that the specific people whose image and attitude and brand effectively he's trying to co-op hate him and think he's terrible. Yeah. And that matters because of that context, because they are making statements with their work and he is using their work to make a statement that is in direct contradiction to the statements that they're trying to make. And again, this I think comes back to the Ray Bradbury Fahrenheit 451 example, because the thing that the, the censorship interpretation is not directly opposed yeah. to the television interpretation. It's a different reading of a different problem. Yeah. But whereas sort of Paul Ryan is exactly the machine that they're raging yeah. against. And <laughs> it, so that that becomes more of a problem. And same, like, people using Born in the USA as a, like, like, let's go, United States, we're great, America's number one, is explicitly counter to what all of the verses of that song say. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's that's very true. There's a dissonance that comes when you're trying to use a statement to make a different statement. Yeah. I don't feel comfortable making any, you know, catch-all statements on this stuff. No. Because you get into, well, is blowing in the wind an explicit civil rights statement? Or is it, you know, yeah. a broader thing? Like, it's, I don't think there's an easy answer, but it's something that's an interesting thought experiment to, to yeah. play around with when it comes to intent. Because it's one of the places where, like, usually I am very kind of, like, staunchly, like, intent doesn't really matter. But with with yeah. this stuff, with, like, with especially with, like, Raging Against the Machine, with a lot of punk rock, you know, with, like, Black yeah. Flag or Dead Kennedys or whatever, like, it's there's definitely a lot of musical traditions where intent is very clearly painted in the lyrics or on the music. Yeah, and that, you know, then comes down to questions of, like, what counts as in the music, right? Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm trying to think of a good example off the top of my head, but, like, one, one of the things that 
gets sort of thrown around is like, is the title a part of the music, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, is that, if, if the title isn't like part of the song, can you, are you allowed to consider it when you're talking about like, oh, we're not using artistic intent? Yeah, yeah. Well, and and you can even extend it beyond like the title to the packaging, you know? The, yeah. the artwork it was released on. Because like something where the packaging adds a lot of meaning is William Bazinski's Disintegration Loops, you know, where yeah. the Disintegration Loops, for those that don't know, it's a piece of kind of like experimental ambient music where it's like playing decayed tapes very slowly and it's kind of creating this, it's very hard to describe, but it's this very long, drawn out, like almost like dark apocalyptic sound and Bazinski released them where the cover is footage from a film, you know, just like yeah. personal camera film that his friend shot of 9-11, like of New York, the sky smoking after 9-11. And that adds this context to this piece that is otherwise just hours and hours of slow instrumental piece, you know? Well, instrumental, you know. That's yeah, <laughs> I, I know what you mean. Uh. Wordless, slow, wordless music. <laughs> Right, and this, yeah, and this goes to, like, paratext, basically. Paratext is sort of all of the text surrounding the text in literary circles. And so, like, at some level, like, when we're talking about Rage Against the Machine, to use that example again, part of our understanding of what they're saying is our understanding of who Rage Against the Machine is, right? I think if, like, Toby Keith had done Killing in the Name of, I would have a very different interpretation of it, even if it sounded exactly the same. Yep. But, and I I never want to hear that, by the way, Toby (laughs) Keith, if you're listening, please do not. But. I mean, if it sounded exactly the same, I'd love to hear Toby Keith doing a Zach DeLaRosha impression. (laughs) That's true. That's true. That might be fun. But like, I think that all of this comes to these these questions of like, and again, this I, I think goes back to the Star Spangled Banner example is that at no point in there do we really need to consider artistic intent. We just have to consider cultural context. Yeah. And we have to consider when we talk about, you know, the dead Kennedys, our understanding of what the dead Kennedys were doing is informed by our understanding of the punk movement as a whole. And even when you're talking about the dead Kennedys, the band's name, there's paratext yeah. to that too, yeah. right? Oh, because deep paratext yeah, in yeah. that. Yeah, exactly. Because if if we use your alien example... It's just kind of a name. Or even if you don't really know American history, you don't know who the dead Kennedys are. But if you know about the Kennedys and you know about RFK and JFK and their assassinations and all of this stuff, then that name suddenly takes on a whole lot more meaning than just a a band name. Yeah. Yeah, and this is, I think, where I start to feel more comfortable being like artistic intent doesn't matter. Because even in the context of like Rage Against the Machine, Dead Kennedys, whatever, a lot of the values of that can be reconstructed through cultural context, right? You can get a lot of that insight without having to try to project yourself into their brain. That's true, yeah. You can wind up walking away with like, who knows, maybe secretly Zach De La Rocha is a huge fan of Paul Ryan. <laughs> I doubt it. I would be very surprised. But would that change your experience of you know, bulls on parade. I don't think it would. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I mean, Rage Against the Machine are just, I don't know if there has ever been a band whose artistic intent has been so clearly splayed out and entwined in everything they do. From the band's name, Rage Against the Machine, the cover of their debut album, which is an image of a Buddhist monk who set himself on fire to protest the Vietnam War, like mid-self-immolation. Everything about Rage Against the Machine is like very visceral and intentional. Yeah. Any other thoughts that we need to get to on artistic intent? I love this topic. Yeah. But are there any big ones that we've we've missed? See, the thing is, I still have this like feeling in the back of my mind that there was something I wanted to say that I am just completely blanking on. But I am completely blanking on it. All right. So, Well, if you think of it, we can do an artistic intent too. <laughs> I'm sure it will be tangentially related to some future topic. So. Yeah, yeah. I, 
I love talking about artistic intent, so I I would yeah. revisit this stuff in the future too. Yeah, it's, we have like I think like three other topics on our current like list of things yeah. to do that are at least sort of related to it. So we'll we'll find space. I mean, it's a the thing is like artistic intent. It is such an easy topic yeah. to relate to things because it it's tied into everything you know the intent of yeah. whatever it is we're talking about is so so important and one thing that i actually now that i'm thinking about it did want to kind of like talk about a little bit is just sure. similar to how you talk we talked about kind of stuff in the theory aspect i think there's this big thing and a lot of the time it's framed in the context of like english teachers but i think it's also true of lyrics yeah. where people are like you know the teacher saying what the artist like actually was saying here. Like, like I think a lot of people yeah. don't understand that artists do work in metaphors and do think about yeah. theme and stuff like that. And again, to use kind of the example of writing because it's very close to lyrics and yeah. Oh yeah. No, I am currently like doing a, a, a creative writing you know, like university course I have a mentor in this course who is a published award-winning author. Like, you know, we do a lot of stuff working in workshops and stuff. We are constantly talking about theme. We are constantly yeah. talking about theme and metaphors and things like that. And like, if you've ever sat down and like written songs and stuff like that, maybe this isn't the case for you. But I know when when I was in a band and we would write songs and stuff like that, these things would come up, you know, and we might not get all of the themes in there, but you really discredit an artist and you discredit the work that goes into art when you assume that people just kind of, you know, sit down and spew stuff out and see what happens. Yeah, which goes to the myth of the lone genius that we've already done episodes about. But I think that the thing for that that I think is relevant, most relevant to artistic intent, I think it's all relevant, but the thing that really stands out to me there is that I think that part of the temptation for that to sort of just be like, oh, they just played what sounded good. They weren't thinking or wrote what sounded good. They just picked these words because they liked them. The flower was blue because the uh, the author liked the color blue. Yeah. Is that it lets you transform the work into a blank canvas onto which you can project your own meaning without feeling guilty, right? Mm -hmm. Because I think a lot of the resistance to sort of deep, intensive scrutiny is that it feels more authoritative. It feels more like if Polyphonic presents this like 20-minute video essay yeah. that goes cites all of these sources about why this song is actually about this, and I'm just sitting here being like, well, I just thought it was fun. I can understand how that would make someone feel bad or feel like their analysis is inferior and they're expected to concede to your yeah. better, more thorough analysis. And that, of course, is not what you and I are trying to do. Like, we're not trying to take your interpretation away from you, and anyone who does try to take your interpretation away from you should be ignored as hard as you can. Legitimately, some of my favorite comments I get are when people write yeah. their own interpretations in the comments. When people say, yeah. oh, like, you know, I always took, especially when they put some thought into it, they're like, oh, I always took the song to be about this with, you know, this example. I love that. It makes me so yeah. happy because I want you guys to be, like, you know, learning to do that. Like, that's... I, I yeah. want to encourage that. And I think that's a yeah. really I mean, good I love point. that or hate that depending on how they frame it, right? Like, it, you know, if it's like, how could you not, like, or you forgot, never say you forgot to a YouTuber. <laughs> we know. We remember everything. <laughs> but um, but no, I, I think like, I love getting comments from people are like, oh, I thought about this rhythmic choice or like, I, I got a thing, uh, like I did recently, I did a video about the Black Parade and I sort of offhandedly mentioned that the meaning of this sort of marching drum pattern was fairly obvious. And then I used that to spin that off into like talking about like the rock opera as a whole thing. And yeah. I, I used that as a setup for a, a very in-depth thing to be clear. But like, I got an email from someone be like, I'm not even sure I would call like the implication simple because these are the drums from Bolero. And so there are- That's true. There are deeper meanings to this that like you can then read into, which I like, one of the things that I'm worst at as a theorist is just looking at something and be like, oh, that's borrowed from this other thing, especially if this other thing is classical music because I just don't listen to that much classical music. But like, that was an interpretation that I hadn't really put into that perspective. And I think it's a really interesting and useful one. And I like, I really appreciated this person sending me that email. So if you happen to be the person who sent that email, thank you. Not you personally, Noah. I'm pretty sure it wasn't you. I'm I found out. I think I know out. your email. <laughs> 
just your alt. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, they, that sort of thing is great. And I think that that's part of what, again, it's, it is that artistic intent is that like, cause it, it is probably like, it's unlikely that they didn't know it was Bolero. Yeah. It's likely that I didn't recognize it as Bolero off the top of my head, but like it adds meaning and it, they probably did it on purpose, but whether or not that influences your experience of the piece depends on how familiar you are with Bolero. Like it didn't do anything for me because I had, but I still recognized it as a marching pattern. And so that had an influence on me because it sounded like a marching band, but I didn't have this association with Ravel where someone who did know the Bolero drum beat a lot better would recognize that and have that other association. And those are both valid interpretations. And that, I mean, that opens up a whole other door with, I mean, Bolero is a really interesting story about like a piece by a man written toward the end of his life and stuff like that too, right? Yeah. Like that's that's part of the fun too. In a lot of artistic intent discussions, something that I'm always really interested in and I talk about a lot in my stuff is intertextuality. Like I think intertextuality is so neat and interesting and exciting. Nerd. Uh, Yeah, so. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead. Like I think intertextuality is just, just really cool, you know? And I think that's something yeah. that can, again, talking about talking about broader contexts, that's another thing that can really add, you know, like add some new context and flavor to your interpretation. And, and yeah, I think, I think to reiterate, like uh, something I'm, I always try to do in my videos is whenever I talk about a metaphor or something like that, I try to say like, this can be read as a metaphor yeah. for this. Like the reality is you can, I really want to reiterate what Corey said of like, we don't like, don't feel, don't feel like polyphonic is, you know, proving your reading wrong. Just, yeah. just think I'm enriching by giving a new reading. And I hope you do the same for my stuff. Cause that's the fun. Yeah. That's the fun of not needing authorial intent to matter. You know, that's the fun of if something, if something doesn't have one explicit meaning, you can really like, mold it and it's really fun to share interpretations yeah. and see what other people how other people interacted with something that you love deeply. Yeah, and you can take the parts of that that are meaningful to you and resonate with your experience and incorporate those into your analysis and your interpretation going forward and you can just throw away the parts that don't. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like that's I think I think an important point that gets like missed in a lot of this is like you don't have to consider every aspect of the music in every possible way in order to be doing good analysis. In fact, it's really hard to do good analysis if you're doing that. And often, and I'm sure you will do the same in your videos, yeah. I will throw out stuff that's not useful yeah. to me. You know, I'll I'll do all of this research. Oh, yeah. This is why you don't tell YouTubers you forgot this, because often yeah. we'll do all of this research and decide this fact isn't useful to the interpretation yeah. that I'm doing right now, so I'm not going to try to wedge it in. I'll just leave it out. Yeah, that sounds right. Like, oh, the, the bass is doing something here. But like, I, I don't have anything super relevant to say about it. And I could highlight it and be like, look at this bass part. But like, what do, what do I gain in my analysis from being like, also, there's a bass thing. Yeah. And so, like, I, I think that's that's a lot of it. It's just like, again, to come back to a discussion we've had in previous like podcasts, is like, fundamentally, what we're doing is a kind of journalism. Yeah. And so, part of journalism is deciding how best to tell the story. And to be clear, best, I, like, I think it's important, depending on what story you're telling, it's important to make sure that one of your criteria for best is accurate. Yes, yeah, yeah. You can't just say anything. Yeah, you, you can't just go, like, there, there are journalistic ethics, but, like, when you're doing, like, an interpretation of a work of art, there is no accurate. Yeah. And that's, I think, the thing that artistic intent can often get in the way of, is that, and I think this ties into a thing that, bugs me a lot in the way not so much actual music theorists talk about music theory, but like the way a lot of the general public seems to interpret music theory. And some of us certainly do this. I don't want to like give ourselves a full pass here, but like the idea that music theory is effectively a science. Yeah. Like a lot of people wouldn't put it in those terms, but, and I think the same with like music analysis and the sort of thing you do as well, which I, I still consider a lot of what you do music theory, but you know, or at least musicology, but anyway. Yeah, it, it's definitely musicology, yeah. Yeah, absolutely musicology. 
often music theory as well. Yeah. But th- those boundaries are super blurred. But anyway, there's, there's this idea that these are a science and that we're using effectively the scientific method and we are forming a hypothesis about what this piece of music is about and then we are testing that hypothesis by analyzing it and then we are updating our hypothesis based on the results of that analysis. And that's just not true. There is no one underlying meaning. And that, I think, is part of what makes the artistic intent thing so appealing is that it does give you that one idealized meaning. Like, this song has a meaning, and either I can find evidence by going to explicit sources, the things the artist has said, and those win, and those tell me what the correct way to read the song is, or without those, I can make my own, like, I can do my own exploration and do my own analysis and do, like, a thorough scientific study and come to a conclusion, and that conclusion is either right or wrong. And the reality is it's always both right and wrong. Yeah, I don't really have anything to add to that. Like, I think that's that's exactly why, I, I mean, I think that's a great, a great place to end this conversation, you know? Like, sure. authorial intent, it can help find an answer, but it can't help find the answer because the answer doesn't exist. There is yeah. no singular answer as to what a song is about or it's just not a thing. But using authorial intent carefully can help you come to yeah. an answer that can clarify these things for you. To just come back to a thing we were talking about a couple minutes ago, as with every other aspect of the music, authorial intent is a really useful part of your analysis if it's a useful part of your analysis. Yeah. Yeah. Which sounds deeply unhelpful, but you know, <laughs> it's ghost notes, baby. Hey, we've talked for an hour to get to that. <laughs> Put a lot of work into providing that deeply unhelpful answer. Yeah, I think I think that's now a good we place transition to this into the chaos section where we just don't yeah. end the podcast for a little while. Yeah, I I think that's a good place to end this. Yeah, thank you all so much for listening. You know where to find yeah. us. Yeah. Bye. Bye.